You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, I'm Aaron White, Director of Communications at the Progressive Policy Institute, and this is Radically Pragmatic, a podcast by PPI. We have a great podcast today featuring an interview with Ben Ritz, Director of PPI's Center for Funding America's Future, and Jeremiah Johnson, Policy Director of the Center for New Liberalism. Ben recently published a must-read blueprint for congressional Dems as they work to craft the major social spending bill in Congress, often referred to as the Reconciliation Bill. The report, titled Reconciling with Reality, the Top Priorities for Building Back Better, can be found on PPI's website. Rather than cutting corners and using gimmicks to cram the entire progressive wish list into a smaller bill, PPI believes the party's goal should be a more focused and disciplined reconciliation bill that sets clear priorities and accomplishes a few big objectives well. Specifically, this report outlines a bold plan to deliver on three urgent priorities of the Democratic Party within the confines of a roughly $2 trillion bill, supporting working families, combating climate change, and expanding access to affordable health care for those in need. Check it out at progressivepolicy.org. Before we get to today's exclusive interview, don't forget to follow PPI on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Just search for the Progressive Policy Institute or PPI on Twitter. And with that, enjoy this week's episode of Radically Pragmatic. Welcome to Radically Pragmatic, a PPI podcast. I'm Jeremiah Johnson, the director for the Center of New Liberalism and your host for this episode, and I'm joined by PPI's Ben Ritz. Ben is the director of the Center for Funding America's Future. He's PPI's main budget wonk. And today we're talking reconciliation and what should be going in the reconciliation bill. We've released a new report here at PPI called Reconciling with Reality, the Top Priorities for Building Back Better. It's about how to accomplish the Biden agenda in the most realistic way possible given political constraints. I'm excited to talk about it. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Glad to glad to get this uh, this piece out. I know that reconciliation has been this incredibly long journey for everyone involved. Obviously, on the congressional side, they've been dragging it out for quite a long time. They are still dragging it out. I know that you've been writing about this topic for months. Do you feel like like there's really a turning point coming where we're actually about to produce something. How do you feel about the the prospects for getting something done in Congress? I think last week was something of a turning point because we've had this sort of stalemate for months now where where the the progressive left and uh, a lot of congressional leadership in the White House was still proceeding as if they were going to get a $3.5 trillion bill, knowing that the votes were just not there. Uh, definitely not in the Senate and probably not in the House either. and But but they were proceeding that way uh, regardless. And there was no dialogue, no negotiation really going on between uh, the moderates and the progressives. And I think now after the after what happened with the infrastructure bill last week and with Manchin, Senator Manchin's top line, you know, his 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 positions document sort of coming out and making clear this is where I am. This is what I want to talk about. Uh, I think that that has opened up an opportunity for 
folks to start discussing it more seriously. And there's been a lot more conversation about how to bridge the gap rather than just proceeding as if everything's fine when we all know it's not. Yeah, there was a, a little bit of, um, I don't know, wishful thinking on the part of some people where it, it seemed very obvious from the beginning that 3.5 was the number that was going to get walked down just because of the political reality of of having such a tiny margin in the Senate and, and having some you know, relatively moderate Democrats there that, that you were never going to get a full 3.5. But what that means is that we're not going to be able to do everything. If you're the Democratic Party, you're going to be in a spot where you've got this big $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. It's got all this stuff in it, all these things that are priorities for different wings of the Democratic Party. And by necessity, something's going to get cut uh, when if you go down to a $2 trillion number or something in that range, which is about what I'm hearing, $1.5 to $2 trillion. So I guess, what are the different roadmaps? Are there different plans? I know that you specifically have a plan, but I guess before we get into the specifics of your plan, Ben, are there different ways that people are thinking about this? Are there different options for how you can move from this larger number to the smaller number? Because there's, it, at some point, it's a matter of cold mathematics, right? Yeah, so there's three different ways. There's basically three different ways they can go about trying to slim the package down. And it's important to remember that when we talk about 3.5 trillion, what we are talking about is the 10-year budget score that most bills are analyzed through uh, by the Congressional Budget Office. The debate really focuses around how to bring down that 10-year number. And there's three ways to do it. The first way is you could simply do fewer programs. So you take some programs uh, and you leave others on the cutting room floor. The second option is you change the parameters of those programs. So this is things like uh, doing means testing, so you're giving the benefit to fewer people or you know more targeting of the programs to reduce their their costs. And then the final option is, uh, which is probably the most gimmicky of them, is to just do the programs for shorter. So this is instead of doing three hundred fifty billion dollars a year every year, which you know times ten is three point five trillion, you would say, okay, we're actually only going to do it for five years, and then we are going to have the programs automatically expire. And so then it only gets scored as, as being half the cost, even though those programs are still really as expensive as they were originally. So and are, this is the- this is kind of what happened with the um, with a lot of Republican tax cr- cuts that have been passed in the last decade or two, right? That they kind of expire them at some point and say, this is someone else's problem. Exactly. Yeah. This this is they did this with the Bush tax cuts. They did this with the Trump tax cuts, uh, which are now most of them are or a lot of them, at least uh, on the individual side, are going to expire in 2025. Uh, This is a standard tactic for Congresses that want to pass their whole agenda without actually making the the decisions that would be needed to, to fit within the price tag. So let me play devil's advocate here for a second, because. Not to spoil the surprise, but you know, I know your paper is coming out against this approach of just art- artificially expiring the program at a certain point. But when Republicans did this with tax cuts, you know, on the one hand, it's irresponsible to say this is an important part of my package. This, I think, this is an important policy for America. That's why it's just going to die after five years if we don't renew it. You know, and good luck to the next party in power. It's your problem now. Sir, sure, that seems irresponsible, but. The Bush tax cuts were extended, you know, a, a couple times, right? And like, so it did actually work out for them. 
Is that not an option for the Democrats here? Uh, I would say it's somewhat worked out. I mean, keep in mind the Bush tax cuts for the top did actually end up expiring. And I think, you know, there's always the possibility of something like that happening. I think it's also important, you know, uh, Congressman Ron Kind had a good op-ed in The Hill where he made this argument. You know, you you don't know that that's how it's going to work out. I mean, that that's one option. Uh, but another thing is, you know, think about the Affordable Care Act. If we had set the Affordable Care Act to expire in 2017, you know, there's no way Republicans would have renewed it. It's a lot more difficult to vote to repeal a program to to affirmatively take that action than to just sit on your hands and let it expire. Uh, you know, we saw with unemployment insurance uh, and things like the eviction ban, you know, these policies that were put in place during the pandemic, even when Democrats wanted to continue with them, they just, you know, you couldn't do it. And so I think the assumption that the programs are just going to get renewed uh, is not necessarily a safe one, even though I think on the flip side of that, from the, the fiscal concerns that a lot of moderates have, those programs could end up being extended and in a way that is is still not paid for. And so I think neither of those outcomes is particularly good. What we want to do is we, you know, President Biden said these plans are going to be fully paid for and we want to do these programs right. Let's do the programs to the best we can in the best way we can. And let's give the people who are going to be relying on them for benefits in the future, the certainty that they can count on them not to arbitrarily expire at some point. Yeah, I think that argument makes sense. I I buy that logic for from most scenarios that it's it's better to just do it the right way. I do think that there's there's at least a little bit of an interesting argument for something like the child tax credit, where in my head, I imagine the child, child tax credit being such a popular program once it's been around for four or five years that I'm hoping it would be just politically poisonous to kill that. But at the same time, do you want to risk it? You know, probably not. Probably not the greatest idea to to just risk it all on an important policy. So if we're not going to do that trick of let's fully fund the program, but only for a few years and then just have it expire, then that leaves us two choices. We can either cut the number of programs. We can say we're just not going to address X, Y, Z in this uh, bill. You know, we're going to cut something out of it entirely, or we can do smaller versions of everything in the program. You know, we can take every single program that is desired in the $3.5 trillion bill and just do a half-sized version of it. What's the approach that you take in, in your recent report? Let's go ahead and get into the meat of that. I think for the most part, what we're recommending is that Congress focus on delivering three key priorities in the most effective way that they can and really selling those programs to the American people rather than trying to do everything sort of in a, in a half-hearted way. And so those three key priorities are uh, supporting working families, combating climate change, and strengthening the Affordable Care Act. I do really appreciate that approach. I, I have this extended rant that I go on sometimes where I, I get angry when moderate Democrats, you know, or, or centrist Democrats do a thing where it's like, well, we just want all the same thing progressives do, but just, you know, like 30% of it and go slow. Like that's, there's nothing moderate about that. You're just looking at progressives and kind of slashing their budget in half. I think it's better to have your own kind of distinctive policy vision, you know, have your own principles and then go full throat for those principles. Um, so I can appreciate that approach that says, let's do a couple really important things all the way correctly. What are the things that, that PPI and that, you know, 
this report are are really going after? So I would say I actually think there is there is some space for for a mix of those two approaches in that you know let, let's take the child tax credit as an example. Uh, there are really two big elements of the expansion of the child tax credit. One was increasing the size of the credit, and the other was making the full value of the credit uh, refundable, which means that that families that have an income tax liability of less than the value of the credit can get a check for for the difference. And so uh, we have those two components. And that second component, the full refundability, is responsible for most of the poverty reduction. That's the main reason why uh, the tax credit helped cut poverty by child poverty by something like 40%. And that is a smaller portion of the cost. So I think it would be reasonable for Congress to say, let's make the tax credit fully refundable and do it permanently. Uh, but we could do a slightly smaller expansion and that does free up resources to you know, do some of these other programs that we want to do. And it does it in a way where it, it doesn't really, you get the savings without actually undermining the purpose of the program. And so I think that those kind of changes are actually good, whereas something like not doing the reverse of that, doing the expansion without the full refundability, you know, then you're then you're really undermining the, the point of the program. So I think it's about trying to strike the right balance there. So with that in mind, uh, you know, we do want some full, uh, some permanent expansion of the child tax credit. Uh, we think that's, that's, you know, the core of the supporting families here. I think programs like universal pre-K, uh, maybe you put in a means test or you require high income school districts to contribute to the program. So the feds aren't covering the full value of it. You're still able to deliver the program in the same way. And, and get those benefits, but at a slightly lower cost. I think that on the, the climate change side, we want to get a good package of renewable energy tax credits that incentivize things like electric vehicles. And we want those to be well-targeted and well-designed. I know one idea out there is to say, you can only get the green tax credits if you're below a certain income threshold. And you know the reality is the goal of the policy is to reduce emissions. It's not we want rich people to reduce emissions just as much as as middle and lower income people, and so we we want to make sure that those policies are are doing the most that they can. And I think we also need to look at something like either the clean energy payment program or uh, a carbon tax to get some of the uh, the power companies to be environmentally friendly and getting people to reduce their emissions more across the board. And then on the healthcare side. We think it's important that lawmakers focus on strengthening the Affordable Care Act and giving uh, health care access to people who don't currently have access to any affordable coverage over doing something like uh, expanding Medicare for a lot of uh, wealthy beneficiaries who already have coverage. I'd love to dive into the climate stuff because there's so many different things you can do when you talk about, you know, let's let's include money in this bill for climate. That's a very general statement, right? Um, that could include like you said, uh, you mentioned tax credits, you know, to help like people buy electric vehicles. There's been in, in previous iterations of this, the bipartisan bill, I think, has money for things like electric vehicle charging stations. You could also think about a carbon tax as climate policy. You could think about direct investment that the federal government is just going to spend money on research for like green energy, green R&D. Is there a particular approach to how this money should be spent on climate that you think is optimal? I think that so I'll, I'll start by saying that I'm not a climate expert. So a lot of our, our package was 
developed in in consultation with our climate folks. Um, but I'm I'm only I'm only somewhat of an expert in that. Uh, but I think my my understanding is we want to focus on the areas that the bipartisan infrastructure bill didn't get to. So uh, we got some good carbon capture and sequestration demonstration projects in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We got some money for modernizing the power grid. That's really good. Uh, we didn't get any. The two things we didn't get were you know these subsidies for things like electric vehicles, the tax credit side, and we didn't get any sort of carbon pricing mechanism. And so I think, however that carbon pricing mechanism is done, whether it's through the clean uh, energy payment program or through a carbon tax, I think we have to get some some policy like that in there that directly internalizes that that extra negative externality of of pollution. So I think those are the the two most important climate priorities. But, you know, I would also love to see some money for, you know, more R&D and for resilience projects. The one thing I'll say about that that last point is I think especially on climate change, we have to be careful to make sure that the money is actually going towards programs that reduce emissions or are actually going to mitigate the effects of climate change because I feel like there is a a big tendency for many on the left to take some ancillary uh, social policy and say, no, no, this is this is part of the climate crisis. So you have to do this policy too. And I think that it's important to make sure that if we're doing things like resilience spending, it is actually going to be making communities more resilient to climate change as opposed to being a boondoggle that has the word climate slapped on You're it. You're talking about like the Green New Deal, which has things like a job guarantee is part of the Green New Deal because that's climate policy somehow now is a job guarantee. Right, exactly. I mean, I think we all know there's not going to be a job guarantee in the $2 trillion reconciliation bill. I mean, a job guarantee could cost $2 trillion every year uh, all by itself. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the Green New Deal was a, a perfect encapsulation of this problem where you take your social wish list and you say, we have to do this because climate change. And I, I think... And this is actually somewhere where I think the the mod Democrats in the House have been really uh, laser focused effectively is the climate crisis is absolutely something we need to invest in, but we need to make sure that those investments are actually tackling the crisis and not being used as an excuse for, for miscellaneous spending that doesn't make sense. All right. So one more question that's kind of narrowly focused on policy. And then I, I want to zoom out to politics after that, because obviously this is a political process. But before we get to the politics of this, I want to talk about healthcare for a second. One of the big priorities for the Bernie Sanders progressive wing of the Democratic Party has been Medicare expansion. This has come in a couple ways. It has come in the form of more generous benefits for existing beneficiaries, things like dental and vision and, and other types of coverage. And it has come through lowering the age of Medicare to 60. And by everything I hear and all the reporting I hear and the people I talk to on the Hill, this seems like something that Bernie Sanders and a lot of progressives have been laser focused on. It's one of their key things in the bill. But your healthcare recommendations go in a different direction. Can you talk about why you went in that direction? Why you went with the framework of kind of building through the ACA rather than expanding Medicare? Yeah, so I think first, and, I, and I, maybe this is you know we're we're approaching the the political side, uh, but maybe I'll go there a little faster than than you intended. I think it's worth taking a step back and thinking about the politics of Medicare for all and answering this question because we we saw that Bernie's campaign and Medicare for all was driven by I think this desire 
of young voters who see the benefits that Medicare beneficiaries have. And they say, uh, you know, if, if the boomers can get those benefits, you know, why can't everyone have those benefits? And that's where that, that push for Medicare for all came from. And I think the, the, the progressive left in Congress has really misunderstood that as just thinking there is this base out there that just really wants Medicare for Medicare's sake. And just went in the complete opposite and wrong direction here of saying, all right, let's take Medicare and give even more to present Medicare beneficiaries. And that's not really the point. The point is, you know, Americans who don't have access to affordable coverage, they want them to have the same access uh, that Medicare beneficiaries do. And so our focus has been not giving health care to the haves, uh, but to the have nots. And so we want to close the, uh, the Medicaid gap. There are 12 states right now that have not expanded Medicaid. We want to make sure that that population that should be eligible for the Medicaid expansion gets covered. And we want some increase in the subsidies to close the subsidy cliff for people who buy uh, health care plans on the exchange. Right now, if you're at a certain income, you can have the subsidy disappear entirely, and then you don't have access to affordable coverage if you're middle class. And we want to close that gap. The American Rescue Plan raised the, those subsidies for one year, but that expires at the end of the year. And there should be some permanent increase that makes sure that those people can get affordable coverage. I mean, it sounds reasonable. Obviously, I'm sure that there are different points of view about how to handle healthcare. I, I'm not going to turn this into a healthcare podcast because God knows that's a complicated enough subject. Um, but but let, let's move into the politics of this because this is something where there's a lot of different people fighting for a lot of different priorities, as happens whenever you're talking about a really big, important bill where a lot of money is going to be spent. This is going to set direction of government policy for quite a long time. This is a very impactful bill uh, for the next decade of American life. And so everybody's fighting for different priorities. Do you have a sense of what the big camps are fighting for? You know, you've kind of articulated one point of view, but what is the other point of view where, like, obviously the progressives want the full 3.5 trillion, but if they're forced to cut it down to like two trillion, do you have a sense of how they would manage that process and how it would be different from yours? Or do you have a sense of like, are there, you know, special interests or special programs that certain people are looking out for? I'm just curious what your view of the political landscape of this is. Yeah. So I think on the, uh, on the left, we have a big push to do all of the programs for a shorter period of time. And, they're banking on the programs basically, you know, being too popular to allow spot to to be allowed to expire, and so they become permanent. Now, obviously, this doesn't, you know, address the real reason why many of the mods want to shrink it, which is that Congress can't agree on offsets to actually pay for these programs. But I think that you know, the, many on the left don't act. That's not a real concern, and so they they want the programs whether they're paid for or not, and so they say make them all temporary. And, you know, we're just going to fight like hell to make sure they don't expire and, and get extended whether they're paid for or not. As far as if they are forced to prioritize what they pick, I mean, Bernie has really made this big push around Medicare. That was that's the one big thing in this plan, in this package that was not in President Biden's original Build Back Better blueprint. And so I think that a lot of the, the left has has made that their focus. They say that climate change is a big priority whenever there's this conversation about uh, you know, why we need this bill. Climate change is always one of the first things to come up. So I think that's a top, that's hopefully a top priority for them. 
And I think that's also a top priority for many of the house mods. So that's that's one area of common ground, fortunately. I think there are other lawmakers who are more focused on parochial interests. Like you have some of the, the New Jersey delegation that is laser focused on repealing the SALT cap, the cap on state and local tax deductions that was created by the Republican tax bill. And, you know, obviously that's a, that, that would be a big tax giveaway to the, the, their wealthy constituents, but those are the people who vote for them. And so they're, they're very focused on that. And so I think every member sort of has their, their little pet projects, but those are where the, the big major fault lines are. Do you have a sense of how much it would cost uh, to repeal the salt cap, like in terms of the, the size of this is obviously $2 trillion. What's the magnitude of that? Uh, yeah, so the salt cap, repealing the salt cap would cost uh, over $80 billion every year that it's it's repealed. And so it's obviously between now and 2025, it's it's one of those Trump tax cut provisions that is is scheduled to expire. But, but you know, even five years of, of 80 plus billion dollars, that's more than the cost of the child tax credit expansion. It's more than many of Biden's other social policies put together. Um, you know, it's, it's more than, than closing the Medicaid gap. It's more than, it's about the same size as the Medicare expansion. Uh, it is an enormous amount of money, only which a small percentage goes to, uh, the bottom 80% of taxpayers. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty pricey, pricey giveaway. I'm, I'm going to let my own bias bleed into the discourse here for a second, but man, if, uh, if we sacrifice like what is it 80 billion at 5 years is what 400 billion dollars if we sacrifice 400 billion dollars worth of climate funding or child tax credit child poverty reduction so that we can give a tax break to rich people and it's democrats who do it that i don't have words for how disappointed i would be if that ends up being the case but but you know we'll we'll see i mean obviously this is one of the most challenging things nancy pelosi has ever had to manage She's had a long, distinguished career of managing challenging projects, but this is probably going to take the cake. This is probably her her magnum opus if she can force some version of this bill and actually get it passed. But I think the more interesting challenge is not in the House, but in the Senate, where there's been a lot of attention and sometimes negative emotion directed at two senators in particular, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And I wonder, what's your read on on the fairness or unfairness of that, where there's a lot of the hate from the progressives and, and the left wing of the party towards these people. Uh, there's a lot of moderates who defend them. There are some moderates who, who get annoyed with them. How do you feel about kind of them being the stumbling block? Because to listen to some people tell it, we'd be getting the full 3.5 trillion if it weren't for these two senators. And, you know, they're just the worst corporate shills. They're just the, the awful, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's any merit to these criticisms or do you think it's a hundred percent overblown or is it kind of a mixed bag? I think the criticism is mostly unfair. Two, two points I want to make on that. Number one is that just politically it is beneficial for mansion and cinema to be taking these, the, the arrows here. Cinema represents a purple state. Joe Manchin represents a deep red state they get some, you know, John McCain mavericky points for going up against their own party. And so they are not afraid to raise their concerns. Whereas you have other members who, uh, you know, maybe it's better that I not name them for their sakes, who have concerns about this, but have more democratic constituencies. 
And so even though they would not vote yes on the bill, a $3 trillion bill as it stands today, there's no political benefit for them to say that publicly. And so they are they are perfectly willing and, and happy to have Senator Manchin and Cinema take the, you know, take the public blows for for pushing for what they actually kind of agree with. Do you think that's really true for cinema? Because obviously Manchin is true. Every time Manchin gets attacked by a progressive, it helps him in West Virginia. That's very clear. I but like J Joe Biden won Arizona and uh, Arizona Democrats don't seem to be super happy with with cinema right now. I'm just I'm curious if you think it really applies to her. I don't know. I'm I mean, I'm a policy person. I won't pretend to to be the political expert, uh, but clearly she has made the determination that this is good for her. I mean, so far, it, it doesn't seem terrible in the sense that, you know, I saw a polling that showed she actually has a higher net approval rating uh, than, than her colleague Mark Kelly right now. Now, whether it's because she has a higher, you know, approval among independents and Republicans and whether those numbers hold when she's up for a reelection against a Republican, I, I don't know if it's a good political judgment, but clearly she has decided that this is in her interest. And whether it is in her interest or not, I know there are other members who she, who, share her concerns for whom it is definitely not in their interest to be waging this fight. So, I mean, it's it's just a question of, is it less in her interest than other members? But anyway, the other point that I want to make uh, is, you know, a lot of the left was attacking Cinema and Manchin saying, you know, you're just, you just kind of have these vague sense you don't want 3.5 trillion, but you haven't actually said what you do want. And the left got very, very frustrated with them over the last few months for you know, the seeming unwillingness to negotiate and actually lay out their agenda. And then we found out, I think it was last week, that Joe Manchin had actually written an agreement with Chuck Schumer in July, where he said, this is what I want. I want a package that is you know, paid for with these offsets. You know, I want spending that is no more than this amount. It was actually, you know, these were clear top lines, not of you know, an agreement of a final package, but what he was looking for and that was just totally out of sync with the the narrative of his critics that you know he was just kind of shooting off without any sense of what he was looking for and so i understand the the progressive frustration with these two senators not getting on board with with what they want but i i think that the the criticisms have been vastly overblown and, and not necessarily fair all right well let's get down to brass tacks it's it's game time so you've put out this recommendation here's what we should do Obviously, lots of other people out there in the, the policy ecosystem are giving their hot takes on this topic. It's a big, important topic. Everybody's putting out reports and tweets and ideas and blah, 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 blah. But what does Joe Manchin actually want to do? Because in the end of the day, it seems like if you want something to pass, Manchin is one of the key actors you're going to have to convince. So when we look at what Joe Manchin actually wants in his policy outline, how much of it do you think is good? How much of it do you think is bad? Does it match what you're thinking at all? And do you think that there's any space to take Joe Manchin's proposals and turn them into a really good package? Or are there parts of Joe Manchin's proposals that are mostly bad that we're just gonna have to live with? How is this process actually gonna play out given that there's only one or two real key actors who are, are going to determine a lot of what goes into this. 
So I'll start off by saying I'm not a Joe Manchin whisperer. So all I can really go on is, you know, what the what we've seen from the public comments. And uh, you don't travel you know, to West Virginia every week to to just get the get the boots on the ground perspective of Manchin land. Uh, no, I, <laughs> no, I do not. Uh, I I mean, look, there, there's no question in my mind we can get a good deal within the parameters of what he's outlined. I'm not sure how much some of those things are red lines versus others. For example, he had on there, you know, the Federal Reserve has to end quantitative easing. I feel pretty <laughs> confident that is not going to be in the final package. I, I kind of highly doubt that's a red line for him, but, you know, who knows? He wanted a lot of means testing and work requirements on things. Some places that make sense, others it really doesn't. It's just a question of how much he's willing to compromise on it. But I think, you know, we scale back to the top line, the top level of he, he outlined some some revenue proposals uh, for scaling back the Trump tax cuts that, you know, would raise a lot of money, uh, you know, on the order of one to one and a half trillion dollars that could be used to put towards this package I, that I think, you know, all Dems should be able to get behind at least those revenue options. I would put more on there, but but that's a solid starting point he offered. I think there's a lot we can do for a package that's $1.5 trillion. And I think it's also important to say, he didn't actually say the spending cap was $1.5 trillion. He said of the new revenue that is raised, no more than $1.5 trillion can go to new spending. Why is that important? Because that means that if we get savings from net spending cut from spending cuts, that money could potentially be plowed back into new programs over 1.5 trillion. So you could imagine a package that was 1.5 trillion of new revenue and $500 billion of savings from prescription drug negotiation uh, or site neutral payments in healthcare or other other savings pro, uh, proposals that, that could get us to a $2 trillion package. And as we laid out in our, in our paper, I think there's a lot of great work that could be done uh, in the context of a $2 trillion bill. So I, I think there's, there's room to get a deal and, and it could be a transformative and a really good deal. All right. So I'm going to end the podcast on this note. If you could give one piece of advice to key players in this, you know, the White House, Senate leadership, House leadership, in terms of how they should move forward. And this, this could be a piece of policy advice, or this could be a, a political piece of advice and, you know, to make this the political process easier. But if you had their ear, what would you be telling them? I would say don't lose sight of the opportunity we have here. A $2 trillion bill combined with the bipartisan infrastructure deal and what was passed in the American Rescue Plan. I mean, that would make Joe Biden the most, you know, his agenda would be the most transformative economic agenda, at least since the Great Society and New Deal. You know, it would eclipse what we got from Obama, Clinton, Carter. And I think it's important to take the win. Uh, I think that there are a lot on the, the left who are going to try to frame it as a disappointment or a compromise when they'll have gotten way more out of this administration and process than any other in, in recent memory. And so I think that, you know, it's important to fight for your priorities, but at the end of the day, we want a bill, we want it to be a good bill, we want it to be a, a sustainable bill, and one that is going to cement the Biden legacy and do a lot of good for a lot of people in a way that Democrats can, can run on in the future. And uh, to that end, I would just, you know, go back to something that Senator Manchin said recently, which is, if you want more than what he is willing to vote for, the answer is to elect more people who want those things. He only wants a $1.5 trillion to $2 trillion package. But if we elect more Democrats in some of these red seats, 
and we show the American people that we can deliver for them, we can always come back to the, the table later with new ideas and new policies. And so don't lose sight of the opportunity we have here and where it fits in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's very interesting that in the grand scheme of things, the idea of a you know a, a half a trillion to one trillion dollar bipartisan bill, depending on how you want to count things, depending on how you do the math, um, and then a, a one point five to two trillion dollar you know reconciliation bill, that's being framed as like the disappointing moderate you know <laughs> compromise. When it, as you said, it's a it's a much bigger thing than is it has been ever accomplished in the last few decades. So. I mean, if if Hillary Clinton, if President Hillary Clinton had gotten that bipartisan infrastructure bill, the way the way we got it under Biden, I mean, that that would have been seen as, you know, an enormous success. So you don't even have to go back, you know, to the Clinton presidency to see this being, you know, unfathomably uh, big. It's it, it's success by even recent metrics. It's it's huge. Well, Ben, this has been really enlightening. Thanks for joining. I had a great time to everyone listening. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, make sure to subscribe and get all of these in your feed all the time that they uh, that they come out. So thank you for joining. This has been Radically Pragmatic. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website, at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.